Welcome to a series of podcasts brought to you by Yale University. Carla Hills, former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development during the Ford administration, discusses her work under the late president. Hill's speech reveals the dynamic of the Ford cabinet and issues of administration, providing a first-hand account of the president. Well, that was much too generous. Yale has a fine law school dean. I thought I had the best uh, general counsel in government with Josh Bolton. And when Josh uh, asked me who's the best in the land on these issues that we were confronting, I consulted with Rick and Josh, and you know you made the top of all three lists. <laughs> so that's a pretty good generational sweep. Um, it's great to come back and to see friends and to participate in uh, the kinds of things that Yale does better than anyone else. And it's particularly nice to come back and talk about a graduate who uh, was quite special. Um, I participated in the ceremonies to celebrate his life at uh, the cathedral in Washington as an honorary pallbearer. And uh, I was startled to have a news commentator say to me, four out of 10 Americans were not born during the Ford years. And so they know little about him. But I think the press picked up, and I do think historians have burnished his image in a much more generous way than existed at the time. So the dean has asked me just to uh, turn my mind back to uh, August of 74 uh, when he took the oath of office. And I can say that ours was a tired, aching, and cynical nation. Uh, Political rancor was uh, fueled by the Vietnam War, ignited by the Watergate scandal, and uh, aggravated by a serious oil crisis. And the combination was truly deadly. Our economy was reeling. The president took the reins of power uh, as labor costs were rising, federal revenues were falling, Inflation had reached double-digit uh, levels, and interest rates and unemployment were growing at alarming rates. During his term in office, August 9, 1974, until January 30, 1976, 29 months that he called a time to heal, he successfully led our nation beset with these political and economic turmoil through the most serious constitutional crisis since the Civil War, and I would say its most, its most serious constitutional crisis because it's very different than the issues we faced in the uh, 1850s. As the only president approved by the Congress to lead our nation, he gave us a style of presidency that we sorely needed. And he left office. Uh, celebrated by the entire nation, indeed warmly praised by his successor in his inaugural address for all that his predecessor had done to heal our land. And it was then, and I think now, a widely head, held bipartisan opinion that Gerald R. Ford was the right man 
for these times, honest, open, unassuming, and thoroughly competent, he restored balance to the executive branch and dignity to the office that had been labeled the imperial presidency. Without benefit of any period of transition, he created an administration of strong-willed individuals whose common characteristics were independence, excellence, and intelligence. To his cabinet came two distinguished university presidents, one from the North who had been dean of a fine law school, and you'll hear more about him later in the, in the program, to serve as attorney general, and one from the South to serve as secretary of then health, education, and welfare a brilliant black lawyer who uh, had graduated at the top of his class at a school just north of here, clerked on the Supreme Court for Felix Frankfurter, had participated in a major way in the Civil Rights Movement to serve as his Secretary of Transportation. A dean from a fine university widely recognized as this country's leading industrial relations expert to serve as Secretary of Labor. A distinguished economist as chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, who has influenced every administration since that of President Ford and who went on to chair for 18 years, the Federal Reserve Board. A former governor of a large industrial state and advisor to previous presidents on a wide range of issues to serve as the ambassador to the United Nations and a vice president who had advised every president since Franklin Delano Roosevelt and who was renowned in his own right as a national leader. And in addition, he was able to keep a distinguished international scholar as Secretary of State, a man of uh, strong and studied views who continues to influence our foreign policy and an extremely successful financial expert, highly respected on Wall Street and an unusually articulate and forceful defender of our free market system. And those of us who served have clear memories of President Ford's desire to hear divergent views, demonstrating both a willingness to expose his ideas to independent thinking and a confidence in uh, his ability to make the tough decisions. He personally heard appeals from his cabinet secretaries to reverse the decisions, the recommendations of his budget office, the Office of Management and Budget. Uh, that's not done anymore in that fashion. And participating in those sessions on more than one occasion, I witnessed an extraordinary grasp of the issues that we brought before him an understanding of how one program related to another, its objectives, the trade-offs, and the costs. And he impressed all who served him with his capacity to contribute qualitatively and quantitatively to the debate and then decide expeditiously. Always his decisions were guided by principle, not polls, not politics. He made unpopular decisions to grant conditional amnesty to those who sought to escape service in Vietnam, to pardon Richard Nixon, to impose sanctions on South Africa, 
to secure the Helsinki Accords. And these decisions were all motivated by what he thought was just and right for our nation, not by what he thought was popular at the time. And those same principles guided his economic decisions. He knew that inflation could destroy the American dream for average Americans. And he was convinced that excessive spending was uh, making their circumstance worse. In his first State of the Union, he told Congress, controlled by Democratic majorities in both the House and the Senate, that he would veto bills promoting excessive spending. And this he did 66 times. And remarkably, in a Democratic Congress that seemed to be veto-proof, 54 of his vetoes were sustained, giving evidence not only of the correctness of his decision, but also of the respect and trust that he built over the years with members on both sides of the political aisle. 26 years on the House Appropriations Committee trained him to spot instantly the fat in legislative proposals. I recall one bill in particular, the Emergency Middle Income Housing Bill that was introduced in the House in March of 1975. It authorized the Secretary of Housing to reduce interest rate payments on home mortgages for middle income families by making periodic interest rate payments that would limit the home owner's interest payments to 6%. Interests then were in double digits. The cost of this subsidy were huge, and so was its po uh, popularity, for its benefits were spread very broadly. President Ford immediately saw that this bill was wasteful, in that it did more than was necessary to help Americans in genuine need. And so when it came to m making the decision, he didn't hesitate. He vetoed the bill on June 24th. We defeated the motion to override the very next day. And then we worked closely with the members of the Banking Committee to develop a rational alternative. One week later, Congress presented, and that very day the President signed the Emergency Homeowner Relief Act that, unlike its predecessor, focused on the homeowners who had lost their jobs who were in the course of mortgage foreclosure, and also it provided that the program would end in one year. Time and time again, this president, who believed that our nation must live within its means, brought Congress along. And he did so not with promises or oratory, but rather because of the confidence and trust he engendered among all members, Democratic and Republican. I watched him uh, brief the press uh, on the budget in January of 1976. I believe he is the only president in recent memory to have done this. After his opening statement, he took questions for more than an hour, covering every department and agency of government. And I can tell you my heart was in my mouth with respect to HUD. But he, dis he displayed a truly breathtaking knowledge of our government. And he believed so strongly in the federal system of government. He knew what the government did well and what it did poorly. And he understood that Little Rock is quite different from Los Angeles 
and that New York is nothing at all like San Jose. And when he said, one size does not fit all, Congress listened. The first piece of legislation that he signed upon becoming president was the Housing and Community Development Act of 1974. And it represented a major shift away from the system built up over decades, whereby Congress dictated how localities should provide shelter for their low-income citizens and how they were to improve their community's development. Under the new legislation, for the first time, communities could choose to use existing or rehabilitated housing instead of being required to construct new housing in order to get federal funds. That change gave a huge boost to neighborhood preservation. Democratic Senator John Sparkman, who then chaired the Senate Banking Committee, hailed it as one of the most important legislations on housing since the Housing Act of 49. And also for the first time, community development funds were distributed to localities on the basis of a formula that weighed, weighed poverty and population, not politics. The funds were no longer required to be spent on seven categorical programs enacted by our Congress, but rather mayors, after public hearing, could direct the funds to their community's most essential development priorities. And the change not only put the money to work where it was most needed, it dramatically shrunk the bureaucracy. Regulations were cut from 2,600 pages down to 30. Applications were cut from 1,400 pages down to 50. And review time was cut from 26 months to an average of 45 days. And he used the same approach with respect to more than 100 federally funded categorical programs involving health, transit, education, and social services that were so tangled in bureaucracy that it was virtually impossible for states or cities to develop a coordinated strategy. He favored flexibility of block grants that mandated citizen participation for federal outlays because he believed that not only that locally and state elected officials were in the best position to know what was right for their city or their state, but they were also in the best position to be held politically accountable. And this president surely and firmly and clearly left his mark. He uh, stopped the erosion of our defense. He strengthened economic and diplomatic ties with Western Europe and with Japan. He was the first president to visit Japan since the war. He put firmly in place a program to reform and reduce regulation of our economy, airline, trucking, railway, telecommunications, and financial deregulation were all started by President Ford, who seized the moment and created a bipartisan consensus to do so. He led us out of the worst recession since the Great Dep uh, uh, Depression by a steady, sound policy that ignored calls for excessive spending 
and in so doing, he created three million jobs, cut inflation from double digits down to below 5%, increased our gross national product by $200 billion. In those days, that was real money. And he dealt effectively with the fundamental issues of federalism, urging the removal of restrictions on funds given to states and local governments. His uh, gifts to our nation have been described in many ways. John Osborne, who was then the respected author of White House Watch, stated that one true measure of President Ford's success was there was not a single substantive problem area in which succeeding administrations could do more than follow or at least improve upon the course bequeathed to them by President Ford. James Cannon, in the epilogue to his 1993 biography, Time and Chance, Gerald Ford's appointment with history, declares, the most significant single accomplishment of Ford was that he restored dignity to the presidency by the example of his own honesty and trustworthiness. And the common recollection at the recent services to celebrate his life was that he led by decency, integrity, and humility. But in my view, President Ford demonstrated more than a capacity to be trusted. He accomplished more than a survival of our system. He gave us a primer on what government in Washington can and should do. And uh, that primer, we would be well adv advised to, uh, to observe when we go to the polls. And he left us with a confidence that no matter how grave the threat to our government, we have men and women who can meet the challenge. And that's quite a legacy. So I thank you, Dean, for asking me to share my affection for our President Ford uh, today. And uh, I'm delighted that you're giving time to uh, remember him as one of your illustrious alums. This lecture was recorded on March 30th, 2007 at the Yale Law School.